Hello, my name is Charles Goldfarb, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alexander Aleem, for the AOA podcast, Lessons in Orthopedic Leadership. Tonight, we have a great podcast. We welcome Dr. Megan Conte-Mika to discuss the pearls and pitfalls of the early years of practice. Dr. Conte-Mika is an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Rehabilitation at the University of Chicago. She obtained her undergraduate bachelor's degree at the University of Washington in Seattle, and she went to medical school at the University of Arizona, and she graduated with honors in research. She completed her residency at Loyola in Chicago in two postgraduate fellowships. I guess the full year was in, uh, at the Mayo Clinic, and then also a traveling fellowship, the Schwartz Traveling Fellowship, and she spent time uh, learning additional information about shoulder and elbow surgery. My connection is that she hosts her own podcast uh, through the ASSH with Christy and Peter Stern, uh, which I understand is going really well. So I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, but first, Alexander is going to say a few more words of welcome. Really excited to have uh, Megan join us. I, I feel intimidated by two podcast veterans and in my podcast novelty uh, coming through, but uh, we're, we're really excited. And we're going to talk about kind of pearls and pitfalls uh, that a lot of orthopedic surgeons run into early in the career. And Megan, maybe we can kind of just start how this got started. It sounds like kind of in the setting of the AOA, which has a lot of resources, I think, for young orthopedic surgeons in practice, but we don't really know. I think for me personally, it was I got sort of involved with the AOA with the Resident Leadership Forum. And then kind of there's this black box of what happens. And then all of a sudden you get nominated and become a fellow at some point five or six years after you start career, but what happens in between that time? That's a pretty critical time. Uh, having now been in currently my fifth year of practice, you learn a lot. It's probably the steepest learning curve of your entire life. Uh, and you can feel like you're, you know, on the proverbial island drinking out of the fire hose. So maybe talk a little bit about sort of why you wanted to discuss this topic and sort of what your experiences have been just kind of broad strokes with, uh, with your first couple of years. Yeah, thank you, Alexander and Chuck. Thank you for having me here. This is very exciting. I listen to your podcast. So it, I may not listen to this one because I don't want to hear my own voice. But this topic arose because we were talking about mentorship for young surgeons in the first few years of their practice. And there's this model of just setting up somebody with another person and seeing if they can work it as mentors and mentee. And I think the problem of forcing that type of relationship on people is they may not fit. Maybe they aren't the best mentor mentee relationship, and then it sets them up for failure. So I think what we need to understand is the needs of young surgeons. And now that I'm in my sixth year of practice, I'm starting to mentor people who are just out of fellowship. And they're running into issues that I ran into when I first started practice. And I was really alone. I thought that I was the only one going through these issues. I was thought I was unique. And then all of a sudden I'm realizing I'm not that unique and that they're going through the same invention of the wheel that I went through. And what can we do to stop this reinventing of the wheel and help people through their first few years, because it sounds like we're all running into the same issues, and we don't even know it. So that is uh, you know, really well said. So let's set the stage, I guess. Tell us a little bit about, I gave, I gave the, you know, 
big picture introduction, but tell us a little about your practice. You're in academic practice. You're in Chicago at the University of Chicago. Tell us what your goals were clinically in setting up your practice, what type of practice you hoped for, what your practice is five years later, and, and then we'll move on to other topics. But just set the stage for us. Tell us about what you're doing currently. So I am a upper extremity surgeon, meaning clavicle to fingertip. Anything in between, I will take care of. I see peds, I see adults. Um, I'm associate fellowship director, and I am also the clerkship director for the medical students. So I'm heavily involved with education. Um, I'm doing research in opioids, social disparities, and I'm mostly interested in elbow surgery and athletic injuries of the elbow, wrist, and hand. There's a lot you said there that's awesome, and we can discuss each of those areas. First of all, the elbow and the athlete resonate with me personally. Those are two of my areas of interest as well. So this is an issue for all young surgeons. Did you intend to start uh, broad and potentially narrow your practice? Because that's obviously quite broad, you know, clavicle to fingertip, uh, adults and kids. There's not much you left out uh, in the upper extremity. I guess nothing. Um, was that your goal? And do you think you'll be able to maintain that? Or do you think you will feel the need to narrow and, and specialize further? So that is exactly what's happening now. I think everyone goes into practice telling their partners, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Like, just hire me. And, and then you get hired. And then you're doing all these things that you want to do and your partners definitely want you to do that you may not want to be doing. And from there, you have to find your niche. Uh, for me, a lot of people didn't want to take care of elbow. I had zero plans to become the elbow lady of the University of Chicago, but it, it found me. And so it's, I've built up a practice where, you know, orthopods in the surrounding area either have issues or don't want to deal with elbows at all. And they send them to me the sports division needed somebody to do the sports hand and wrist. I never thought I'd work with athletes, but they needed someone to do it. And I said, okay. And so those things kind of just organically evolve as you say yes and no to different things, or at least in my practice, Alexander, I don't know what you've experienced in your practice. And if that's similar. Yeah, I think because I was going to ask you if you sort of had a career development plan when you started, because I think that's something that is, I didn't really develop one until about a year or two in, because I was kind of like you, it was, I want to get hired. I'm a shoulder and elbow surgeon. So I'm, you know, I, I stop at kind of the elbow and I'm glad someone likes to take care of athletic elbows, but you know, I had a fairly good idea of what I wanted to do, but the same thing is kind of like, it's this like black box of just like, you know, residency is you do your rotations, you go through it, as long as you do well, you're going to succeed. And that's fellowship. And that's honestly like all of your training. So you kind of just have this mentality of like, I'm just going to show up and just work hard and the rest will figure itself out. But you can sometimes find yourself either in really good situations, which it sounds like yours have evolved into or really bad situations. And we hear this stat that kind of is a little bit scary about, you know, almost 50% of orthopedic surgeons change their practice within the first five years. And I wonder how much of that is because of that sort of, we come into it, not really knowing or planning or thinking what we want to do and not really putting it to paper. And then we don't have an ability to reassess. So do you have a career development plan now, or what has been kind of your experiences with that? Because I found that personally to be something 
that I check in with now a lot. And it really helps me kind of stay grounded in terms of what are the things that I really like and maybe something's changed. And I thought something that was really good isn't. And how can I maybe evolve? Yeah, I think there's a couple of points to that, to that question. The first is yes. Now I have something. Did I have something the first few years? No, I was, I came in saying I'm hungry and I want to be busy. And that meant saying yes to everything. But at some point you have to say no. And we're not taught how to say no and how to say no strategically. We also are not taught how to put ourselves in a situation where we're going to be successful and not burn out. And I think those are things that you need to learn quickly because you will burn out if you say yes to everything. And then you become the person that everyone dumps on. Nobody wants to be that person. You want to have a niche that you want to have. You don't want to have a niche that everyone else wants you to have. So I think that is very important. And since I struggled or I felt like I struggled and I've now realized I'm no more special than anyone else starting their career with that plan. So with the residents, I have a practice management that I do with the fifth years. And one of the exercises that I make them do is I make them put out a one-year, a five-year, and 10-year plan, both professionally and personally. And then I ask them to do the same with their significant other and see if they match up. And I tell them, I don't want to be part of their conversation, but the two of them should share those personal and professional goals between the two of them and, and start a conversation. Because if you don't start having that conversation and thinking about it, you're going to be really, really overwhelmed in a couple of years because you have no idea what you're doing and where you're going. Those are some really, really thoughtful insights. And, and, and the, the burnout thing is real. And I think it's something that we, we now are not afraid to talk about. It doesn't mean we're weak. It means that we are acknowledging the struggle. How do you say no? I, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles and I still struggle with it. And you know, I'm, I'm back at the place where I train for residency. So there's a lot of just inherent, just kind of, you know, I have to say yes, because I still think I'm needing to impress people like Chuck, uh, who remember me as like a third year medical student who barely knew what the operating room was. And now here I am. But you mentioned, how do you say no without seeming like you're pushing away because everyone's young and hungry when they start out, everyone's eager, everyone wants to be known as a, as a partner that's not putting up walls, but you have to at some point, otherwise you're just going to drown. So I'll answer that. But I also want to hear Chuck's answer to this because he's farther out and I'm intrigued to see somebody so seasoned, how they would, how they would respond so to this nice. question. <laughs> um, so I, I think I have said no to the right things. And I've also said no to the wrong things. And I've also learned that there is a stylistic way of saying no. So earlier in your career, I think you have to think about the politics of you saying no and what the repercussions of that could be. So for example, I had a partner who would send me a lot of stuff that that person did not want to take care of. And I would take it and take care of it, even though I didn't want to take care of it either. And then something came in that one of my other partners would be better at. And so I said, I know I, I don't take care of this. You know, you should talk to this other partner. And from that time on, he never sent another patient to me. 
because I said no to him. And there was a way I could have handled it better. And that's where the stylistic points come in of how to handle saying no. Now I am a mom and I'm about to have my second child. So my responsibilities are very different and I have less problems saying no to things that I am not going to be passionate about and I'm not going to do a good job about. Um, I've asked by some people to take on some leadership roles that two years ago I would have loved to have, but now I do a bad job at it because I don't have the bandwidth. So in a couple of years, yeah, if they asked me, I would say yes. But right now when you, I have a 20 month old and in you know six weeks, I'm going to have a newborn, <laughs> there's no way I could do it and be good. It's going to make me look bad. So you have to say no, but I say, I say, I can't do it now. And it's not because I don't want to, it's just, I don't think I'm going to do a good job at it in a couple of years. Please circle back. That goes so much farther than just saying, no, not interested or trying to turf it onto somebody else. Chuck? You know, great points. A, a lot uh, has been said that I'm dying to comment on. First of all, thank you for calling me seasoned and not old, but I am so old that I'm going to shortly be getting my vaccine because I'm in the older age group, which, uh, you know, go figure, is that good or bad? Um, anyways, all right, first thing, how do you say no? So I learned the hard way, I think generally, generationally, and I don't know if I'm in a different generation than you guys. I think I am. <laughs> yes, I see some head nods. You guys don't see those who are listening. Silent, we're silently nodding your head. <laughs> so I'm in a different generation. That's fine. And I guess in, in the generation I feel like I grew up in, and I think it was pretty well accepted, you don't say no. Because as you, as you start your practice, uh, you're trying to make connections and learn as much as you can and you just said yes. And that is a recipe for disaster, for sure. There are benefits. You meet people, you learn things. You may learn and be exposed to clinical things that you otherwise would not have been. Uh, like M Megan, I was exposed to the elbow because no one at my institution really wanted to take care of the adolescent elbow. And that's how I was exposed. And I said yes to that. And I thank goodness that I did 20 years later. And so there is power in saying yes, but it has to be on terms where, as we've heard, you can do a great job and you'll represent yourself and your institution well. It'll make you happy. Not everything has to make you happy, but you have to have job fulfillment. And so there's a lot to that and all of us will approach it differently. Uh, I think a thoughtful no, if it's gonna be no, has to be handled really tactfully. And there's sometimes we just saying no is really tough, but in the end, uh, it can be the right answer. And I would also say I love the concept and you know, as medicine becomes more savvy with the connection to the business world and we learn from our peers in the business world, the whole concept of the one, five and 10 year business or personal plan is incredible. It's absolutely the right thing to do. And seeing where you change priorities or lose your way, is just incredibly valuable. I did not do that. And you know, there's also value in pursuing the opportunities that come your way without a rigid adherence to such a plan, but having some guiding principles and being aligned with your significant other absolutely has to be the starting point. So I think those are great, great pieces of advice. And then I'll, I'll turn it back to both of you with a question. 
in bigger practices, and I don't want to distinguish between academics and private practice, but in bigger practices, it's hard to stay broad, right? In smaller practices, you need to stay broad because you'll be asked to do more. The bigger your practice, the more likely that all those niches have been accounted for. So Alexander, when you started at Washington University, it was already a pretty big practice. It's gotten bigger. How did you stay as broad as possible? And do you think you've stayed sufficiently broad? How much elbow do you do? That's a, that's a great question. You know, my situation was, was a bit unique in, in the fact that when I finished residency, we had four full-time shoulder and elbow surgeons. And then within about a month, we went down to two and a third uh, shoulder and elbow surgeons. So I came into a, a practice that was desperate for just a shoulder and elbow surgeon because of, of clinical volume needs. And so I came in and basically got handed like a full practice that was like, we need you just to offload these patients because my two uh, my two more, more senior partners were basically running on redline. So I got thrown into a very busy clinical situation, which was great because you want to be busy clinically, but it actually kind of maybe prevented me from thinking about some of those other things in terms of how did I want to develop my research? How did I want to develop my educational plan? What administrative stuff did I want to get involved in? Um, and so that's been something that I've had to really kind of circle back with and have been lucky enough to be kind of involved as the associate residency program director now, which has been a really, really great opportunity and uh, be also involved with some of the administrative work on our, on our floor, which is kind of like near and dear to my heart because these are all like people that I used to remember as like resident and like kind of uh, living in like the trenches and at Barnes hospital. So I think that was, it's hard to stay broad, especially at a place like that. And then, you know, I got really pigeonholed really quickly into this is your practice because this is the need of your practice. Uh, so how do you then expand into that? And, and I think part of it is we're lucky enough to be in a big practice and I have great partners. So I'm able to collaborate with people like Chris D and do kind of these, you know, we, we both see patients that have things that overlap. Let's scrub it in a case together. Let's think about something that we can do. Similarly, you know, flaps with Dr. Brogan and Dr. Boyer, you know, how can I do that? So I think being, being open with your partners and kind of saying, Hey, can we maybe do this together and not getting pigeonholed is really important. I would ask, and maybe and Megan, you kind of mentioned this, you know, the circle back. No, now is not a good time, which I think is a great way of thinking about things because you have to be honest with yourself and, and the quality that you can provide for an opportunity. But there's that inner fear that, wow, this may not come back in two or three years when I'm ready for it. How do you uh, how do you rectify that? How do you how do you kind of deal with that? Because that's for me personally is the biggest thing that kind of sits in the back of my head is this is great, but what in five years when I know I can probably do it better, is this going to be completely gone? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we all struggle with that, and I think that's why we have a hard time letting go because we don't want to miss an opportunity. But by saying yes, sometimes you do miss another opportunity. So saying no doesn't necessarily mean it's closed the door. It may have opened another one. One of the things that I, I think was invaluable of learning is the power of your partners. It's really easy, especially when you first start of feeling really alone. You go from residency where you have, you know, all these people who are in the same boat as you, you can commiserate in the resident room who's understands exactly your frustrations. You can joke and they get what you're talking about to all of a sudden you're in practice and 
none of your co-residents exactly have the same practice as you. They're not going through the same things. And your colleagues at your job are at different levels of training and are going through different things. So it's very easy to feel lonely. But that communication with your partners is so invaluable. Understanding the roles of your partners is also very invaluable. When now we're expanding the upper extremity division, we have, you know, one of my partners who does trauma and upper extremity. And I was scared when he came because he started taking all the, you know, the proximal humerus fractures. And I used to be the proximal humerus lady and everyone was sending him to me because nobody wanted to do them. And now I do none of them. Once in a while, they'll come in my clinic and I'll do them. And I'm, I'm, you know, have a little bit of anxiety because I don't do them as often as I used to do them, but it's opened other doors because I'm not doing it you know, and I can focus on elbow and I can focus on sports because he is there and he's interested in a lot of trauma that I'm not that interested in. So while it closed one door, it opened another one. And I think that's what we have to remember is like the unknown is not necessarily scary. It's an opportunity. And now that I have a new junior partner who was trained at WashU, So thank you guys for doing a good job. And he wants to do brachial plexus and nerve and peds trauma, which is great because I don't want to do that. And so I can send those cases his way and he's happy. And yeah, that means I have decrease in volume, but it means I can focus on other things. And as my academic career gets busier, I don't have as much time to spend on these cases that I'm not as interested in. And it's not fair to the patient. I rather send it to someone who's going to be happier. And I, and I think that's the biggest thing to understand as a colleague, but also as a mentor, that you have to be a little bit selfless in making sure that you're helping other people's careers because you want them to be happy. You don't want them to leave, but it also, if they're happy, it should make you happy as well. So I think that's the one of the things that we struggle with as orthopedic surgeons is no one's taught us how to be a mentee. Nobody's taught us how to be a mentor. It's supposed to be one of these things that we just know how to do. But again, there's no leadership skills that we learn in residency of mentorship. So again, a ton of great points. I feel like there's so many different directions I can go after each of you say something. I want to go in two different directions. First, I want to go back to the saying no. Anybody who knows me knows, as Alexander said earlier about himself, I, you know, I don't say no very well. And it is a skill I didn't really learn, but I have learned it a bit. But let's be honest in that if you want to get involved with a national organization like the AOA or like the Hand Society or the Shoulder and Elbow Society, the way you get involved is at whatever level, often it's committee work, you say yes and you do a great job. And that's the way forward for sure. And so it is about picking and choosing and prioritizing, which is so hard to do because until you're engaged in whatever it might be, national society work, you know, local school or whatever, you don't know what's going to really resonate with yourself. You might think you do, but I think it's that engagement teaches you. And then totally changing gears to what you just said, the, what I think is super interesting is, is when you get to that point in your career, and both of you are already there, because I know Alexander is as well, and you hire a younger partner. I mean, oh my God, that's a huge transition, because yes, you are giving up something, and you have to take on the role as a mentor, and you have to give up so that person can succeed. And it's a super interesting concept. How do you handle that? 
and it sounds like, well, I know both of you have, you know, we just heard what Megan does. Alexander, how have you handled having a brand new partner? Yeah, it's been, um, I think, I think it's very similar to Megan's experience. You know, I think there's a lot of anxiety, especially because, you know, I'm still in the early stage. So clinically, um, you know, I'm not at that steady state where if, if someone comes in and takes a few cases, whatever, but I think a great example is today, I, you know, there was a, we got a consult for a total elbow arthroplasty for a distal humerus fracture. I was in the OR with a busy day and said, yeah, maybe we can add it on at the end of the day. And my junior partner was willing to sort of move. He's like, I got 10 patients in clinic. I'll come in and do it. Don't, you know, don't be here. And the case got delayed and I was able to potentially do it. And he was there. And it was kind of one of those moments where I said, well, you know, really, is it worth me to be here, you know, and he's already doing it. He's going to do a great job and, and everything worked out well. So I think that's kind of letting go. Whereas, you know, I think four or five months ago, I would have been like, I'd still be in the OR probably. So um, I think that that makes everything a little bit better. Megan, your point about mentorship and menteeship is really, I think, an important uh, thing because I didn't even think about any of that stuff, like you said, in residency. And it was honestly the, the resident leadership forum that I got kind of assigned, uh, kind of nominated for, uh, for the AOA that even gets you thinking about that. And then you realize how important this is for your career. And really, you know, a lot of the stuff we've talked about in residency, while it's important, the technical things change and we, we evolve. But some of those, how do you understand who's a good mentor? How do you be a good mentee? And how can you leverage some of those relationships? Really didn't, I didn't really think about that until before my chief year. And then you kind of go on. And, and so what are some of the ways that you are trying to incorporate that? You mentioned a little bit of the practice management series you have with the fifth years. Um, anything else that you've done personally to try to develop your own skills, both as a mentor and as a mentee? That's a great question. So uh, today, I guess is a good example. I met with one of our new hires who is um, six months in and I got coffee with her and she's not in my subspecialty. She's an orthopedic surgeon. And I just asked her how things were going and just left it really open with no agenda just to see how she's doing. And we had a great conversation and there was a lot of things that she had questions about both on and off the record that she didn't know who to ask or how to ask. And I remember being in that situation where it's like, what, what is the right way of handling this situation? And how can I deal with this? What would you do in this situation? And it was it was really helpful. And I was worried it was going to be a five minute conversation and it, it turned into a fruitful, you know, 30 to an hour conversation. And I feel like I wish somebody had done that for me when I first started, you know, and just sat me down and said, Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? Because we don't know how to communicate that sometimes. And sometimes we need a check-in. And I, and I think I remember as I started my practice. I'm like, how do I navigate this conflict? You know, because conflict resolution is something they teach in business school. They teach it in all of these other things, but we learn conflict resolution from, you know, our attendings when we were in residency. And some of our conflict resolution that we're taught is throwing instruments or berating people or other things that we would not be able to do today and would put us in some type of written up situation or 
cultural sensitivity classes on Saturdays that are just not acceptable now. So I try to spend some time learning those things myself through reading, through asking my own mentors, what would they do in these situations and have a broad spectrum of mentors. And I'm intrigued to hear about your mentors and and that kind of spectrum, but I do have ones that I talk to about my personal life that how do you balance these things? There's other people that I talk to about purely career stuff, purely uh, research stuff. And I have found that when you kind of have a lot of different people involved and invested in your career, it's very, you can get a lot of really rich answers, but at the same time, you need to do that for for the generations that come after you. That's well said. I would say to residents who are listening, and I say this to our own residents when they're considering their fellowship choices, as much as you need to learn the nuts and bolts of whatever your fellowship may be, you ideally identify someone who will be there for you as you develop in your career. And that's certainly what I did in my choice of fellowship, which was with Peter Stern and a bunch of other wonderful people, Tom Kefauver and others. But part of my choice was knowing that I would have a great mentor. And it's harder to do in residency because you just don't know exactly what you're doing when you're applying to residency, no offense uh, to those uh, who are listening and applying. But I think for fellowship, for me, that was crucial. And then as a young attending, as Megan said, I learned different things from different people and I counted on different messages from different people. And again, I don't wanna, maybe I'm speaking about myself or maybe about my generation, I think things are more verbal and people are more comfortable asking. For me, it was always informal. And a lot of it was watching and learning through seeing how other people handle problems. I think we are all better in 2020 about how we communicate things like you know, mentorship lessons. But so many people, I was, I've been so fortunate to have wonderful mentors that each bring something different to the table. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. I think it's the more diverse your mentors are, I think the more information you can get and the better you can make yourself. And, you know, within your subspecialty, within orthopedics, within medicine, or even outside of medicine, just getting life advice from, from various walks of life from people who may not necessarily have the exact same goals or experiences as you do, just to get a different perspective, I think is really helpful. Um, the interesting thing for, you know, and Megan, you mentioned it is now you and I are kind of in this sort of middle transition period of we are not quite senior, but we're senior enough that we're starting to see junior people come in and we tend to be sort of the more comfortable, natural kind of conversation where those casual conversations like you had uh, with with one of your junior partners kind of come up more organically. Um, and you still have your formal mentors that you kind of look at from your fellowship or whatever. And it's really, I think for me, it's it's interesting to see that kind of downstream and how how that affects it. But then trying to stay engaged with your mentors as well, because how do you, and Chuck, maybe you can answer this, you know, 20 plus years into practice, you still have mentors, obviously, uh, and you still gain advice from people that, that you've learned from, but now you have a sea of people trying to do the same thing from you. So how do you kind of manage that kind of mentor ladder, I guess, in terms of, are you still really, do you see yourself as kind of mentor at the top of the mountain or are you uh, kind of going up and down both ways? Well, I have a lot to learn about being a mentor. I think I'm a good mentee. I think I learn a lot from others, but I, I have a ways to go. I, I could be better for sure. 
And I do think my first inclination is to, you know, I guess it's like when you're on a sports team and different sports leaders have different styles. Some of them are verbose and some of them are lead by example. And I like to think <laughs> I lead by example. Others may be rolling their eyes who know me. I, I, that's how I, I, I like to think. I do hope and try to put things in words sometimes. And certainly I like to answer questions, but it's a stylistic thing. And uh, I do, at this point in my career, it's really nice to have people like Peter Stern and Richard Gelberman, uh, especially to turn to when I have big picture questions about what my next steps might be or what to prioritize at this point because it's all new to me too. I mean, being at this stage is all new. So yeah, it's a learning, it's always a learning process. You know what, that's what makes it fun. So I have a question for the two of you. I was doing a women in hand surgery uh, symposium at the ASSH this year. And we were talking about the need for, you know, mentorship. And I'd asked people, just email me if you're interested, maybe we'll get a program put together. And I got some emails from a few of our members that were just drowning. Like they had no one to talk to. And I was trying to put something together for a long-term project, but these people needed help right now and ended up just calling them and being like, let's chat. And they had no one to talk to. And, and I felt awful for them because they have partners, they have colleagues, but they aren't reaching out to them. And how do you find mentors? How are you successful? Because it's, it's not being assigned somebody because that's usually not effective, but how do you find someone to be your mentor? Well, sometimes it's easy. Some people project who they are very outwardly, not necessarily in a boasting way or in, a, in an over you know, sharing kind of way, but some people are just clearly mentors. But I think the, the opportunity that perhaps some of these people that reached out to you when they had the opportunity may have been missed because I think many of us will serve as mentors if we're engaged. Uh, it may not be as natural for certain people to broadcast that they will be a mentor and it may not be as easy for them but if I were to approach someone in my practice, maybe a smaller practice and say, I need some help. I have some questions. Can we meet for coffee once a month and let me pick your brain? Maybe that works. I, I would never suggest it will work in every occasion, but part of it is finding a fit. So even if you have the obvious mentor, that person may not be the right mentor for you or may not be the right only mentor for you. And so as we talked about earlier, I think it is finding what different people bring to the table. I completely agree. And I think it's as someone who personally doesn't ask for help openly a lot, that is definitely a concern that you may have. And I think as orthopedic surgeons, we, we are a little bit self-selective in that we are, we are doers. We are, you know, we, we like to think that we can overcome anything with our, with our hard work and grit and, asking for help can be, or asking for mentorship can be sort of internally viewed as a sign of weakness. I don't need help. I can figure it out on my own. And I think that was one of the, the best lessons that I learned throughout sort of maybe 
kind of late residency, early, early fellowship was that you can't do it on your own. You have to have help and you need to have a mentor. I got lucky when I came back to watch you that I was uh, suggested to take part of a, of a master's in clinical science program in which a large portion of it was basically having to have a mentor. It is a research mentor, but having to have regular meetings with a mentor, having to document them, having to put them on both of our calendars and turned out to be a great thing because now we kind of do that outside of the research realm and we check in every few months and probably wouldn't have been something that I would have thought to have done, especially at a place where I, you know, had some comfort level. Uh, and so I think it's, it's understanding that you need to have those relationships and it can be like Chuck said, as simple as just identifying people. It can be as, as awkward as just walking into someone's office and say, Hey, will you be my mentor? And, and I think that's okay too. And I think I've known uh, some people that have done that. And, and most people I think are willing to act as that mentor. I think you don't realize how, and you may not have, you know, the ability to see how your, how your junior partners maybe are, are kind of struggling or drowning, but you know, it's, it's a, it's kind of an odd question sometimes, but I think it's a, it's a good one. And I've done that as well as just said, Hey, can I make you a mentor for this kind of thing? And I want to meet with you every five months so we can talk about just now, how my clinical practice is evolving. Am I on a trajectory to be involved with this society? And that's, I, that's worked out pretty well for me, but it's still an awkward start, I'd say, as, as someone who just doesn't like that too much. And I would say labeling that first conversation as asking for a mentor might feel like the right thing to do, and it might be the right thing in some situations, but I don't think you have to label it to start. I think you can go ask for advice or career direction or help on a case and let it evolve to talk beyond a case. Uh, I think there's different strategies. And I think labeling it a mentor-mentee relationship can be intimidating for some, and it might be easier for some not to go there to start. I want to talk more about burnout and this mentorship thing, but I feel like there needs to be some cheesy music that comes on, and I'm going to do a, a couple of comments from our sponsors. So uh, we're here for the AOA. And I, they have a, the AOA has a number of programs which are relevant to this conversation. And I just want to run through those quickly because I'll be honest, I, I have not been fully engaged in any of these. And I think they are really super helpful. The website will have more information about these. But the first is the Resident Leadership Forum. And this is the Dr. Everts Resident Leadership Forum. And it, it, it allows participants to interact with peers from across the U.S. and Canada to gain new perspectives, share best practices, and make vital connections. And so this is what is available for certain residents, and it's a great way to be introduced to AOA and other residents across the country. So that's one opportunity within the AOA. The second opportunity is the Emerging Leaders Program, and this is meant for chief residents, PGY5s, up through your 13th year of practice. So this would be for most before you are a member of the AOA and it helps bridge the gap between the resident leadership forum until AOA membership. And so this kind of some of the stuff we're talking about, but you know, maybe not everything that's, that's necessary. The emerging leaders forum is similar to the resident leadership forum, but for members of the emerging leaders program, as this is an annual gathering to discuss leader, leadership skills in particular. There's the Leadership Institute, which is, to my understanding, a more formal, deeper dive into a topic. And then finally, I want to mention the transition to practice modules. So this is on the AOA website. 
It's under the CORD, the C-O-R-D tab, for those of you not familiar, on the website, but you don't have to be a member or an affiliate to access these. You have to log in so we can keep track of things. But this has uh, various modules like how to choose a practice, negotiating contract, coding and billing, leadership development. So really useful information that many of us did not know was even there. But there's a lot of opportunities and we want to help that transition for from residency to fellowship to young member to seasoned member because the AOA is more than just being about the seasoned uh, orthopedic surgeon. All right, I've blabbered on too long. Now we get the cheesy music and we're going back to Megan. So I think something you brought up about burnout. I think burnout is really important to talk about. I know that everyone thinks that the millennials are soft and that we're, we just can't handle it and we just burn out because we can't deal with it. Even though Alexander and I are at that cusp where we won't admit that we're, we're millennials because we're like a year or something. We're millennials. You're both millennials. Come on. We're millennials. We're, we're Gen <laughs> X. With the transition between Gen X and millennials. I, I'm a millennial. Yeah. So I said that once to my senior partner and uh, one of my senior partners, and she she said to me in response, you know you're a millennial when you refuse to admit that you're a millennial. And I was like, <laughs> well, how do I respond to that? <laughs> anyway, so we are weak and we just burn out quicker, maybe whatever. I'm not, I'm not even going to get an argument. But I think it's important to talk about because... Uh, You see a lot of people who are angry, they're frustrated, and they respond inappropriately to conflict. And all of a sudden, they become labeled as disruptive surgeons, or whatever, or they're the hard to deal with surgeons. And, and the problem isn't really that, because, you know, you got this far in your career, if you were really that big of a problem, you probably would have been weeded out. It's just that you're burned out. So how do you deal with that? How do you identify it? How do you make sure that you don't, you don't burn out? And I'm asking you, Chuck, because you're older than us, way older than us, and have all the answers. Way older than us. Way older. <laughs> seasoned. You're seasoned. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, I think there's lots. I mean, first of all, all of us are going to have different strategies to minimize the risk of burnout, but all of us are at risk. And I think of it as there's thresholds and, you know, based on health and based on family and based on job, there's all these different stressors. And if all are going in the wrong direction, it's just really hard. And certainly a pandemic lowers all of our thresholds to burnout because we are all stressed probably more than we've ever been in our lives. And that's just the, that's just the pandemic. The rest of the stuff, you know, adds to it. I think we all have to develop different strategies to increase our resiliency. And sometimes it's little things. One of the things that, I, that really has been valuable to me, first of all, I'm at the point in my career where when I'm practicing medicine and not doing leadership things and, and meetings and things like that, that's when I know I'm back in my happy place. Um, and so if I'm in clinic, I love it. And when I'm in the OR, I love it. But one of the things that's helped me is when I operate with one of my partners, it's a de-stressor, it's fun. And I think at both of your stages, since you were so young and millennialish, you don't do that very often. And you forget about that being really fun. You have residents and fellows because you're in academics, but operating with a partner is different. And so that's one, and I'll just leave that, that's one of my techniques. And I'm fortunate to be able to do that somewhat commonly. 
I would recommend that to anyone who doesn't do that commonly as a de-stressor and a way to just have fun uh, doing, you know, obviously good work for a patient. I think two things. One, as Megan said, I think acknowledging it is really important. We can make all the jokes we want about millennials being weak and soft, but I, th I think uh, generationally we, we're willing to accept that there is perceived weakness and then there's something that we're struggling with. And so that's the first step of it is just understanding what it is and why is it happening. I think I hear this a lot from, from people and they say, well, I'm doing, when I'm doing the medical stuff, it's great. When I'm in clinic, it's great. When I'm in the OR, it's great. But then it's when I'm, you know, in the, in the, you know, administrative meeting or when I'm doing all my documentation or I'm doing my paperwork or I'm doing the billing, that's when things kind of pile up and I, and I lose it. And so part of the problem is that's kind of unfortunately a necessity now with what we're doing in the medical thing. So we do, we, we, the administrative burden is there and we have to kind of acknowledge that that's going to be there. And so how do you then deal with that increased burden? I think, I think it's finding those little nuggets, like Chuck said, that make you really have a lot of fun when you're doing it. For me, it's resonance. Uh, to, to work with a resident is so much fun to be, to see kind of that transition, see how they grow over the time with me on a rotation, kind of see them develop over the five years that, that they've come through. That's just like, that's just bonus time for me to, to be able to hang out with residents is just so much fun. And it gets to be part of what I'm doing in the job. And then I think from a personal life standpoint is just acknowledging that you need time away from, from work with the pandemic, you know, zoom is now something that we all do, but it's made it even easier for us to be 24 seven work because we can schedule a meeting at 8 PM and then another meeting at 8.30 and another meeting at nine. And we don't have to leave your office. Um, you can do meetings on Saturdays. You can do meetings on Sundays and it's really easy. So with email, text messaging, now with Zoom, it's really easy to not unplug yourself. And so for me, it's taking time to just be unplugged. So my wife and I have an agreement. Saturday morning is kind of my weekend sort of work time. And then after that, unless it's like an emergency, I am out. That, that's really good. Uh, I want to say one more thing along the same lines. And we hit on this a little earlier is that when you bring in a new partner, it stresses you out naturally. You're worried about your volume. And I'll say that in my career, it's only been the last five or six years where this doesn't happen. Everything's cyclic, right? You get really busy and you're, you're happy, presumably. And then for whatever reason, you know, your volume may drop a little bit and you stress out. And maybe you don't have a full OR day. And instead of enjoying the part of the day when you're not running around taking care of patients, you're sitting there stressed out about if you're anything like me, like, well, why am I not busy now? What did I say? Did some patient go on the internet and say something bad about me? And so I think we have to accept the cyclic nature of what we do. And it's, it takes a while to have a practice that's resilient to trends we don't even understand. And so when you're busy, enjoy it. If you're not busy, find a way to enjoy it, whether that's engaging in another part of your practice or whether that's going home and going for a run. I think that's really important and that's not easy to do. At least it hasn't been for me. So it's interesting that you talk about it because it's a timely conversation for me is um, I'm going to be going on maternity leave. And during that three months, a large portion of your practice is gone because They've either had issues that your partners have taken care of for you, which is wonderful, but it's not like you come back to a full OR, a full clinic, you have to build up again. And I've had to do that once when I started practice, I had to do it again when I had my first child, and I'm going to have to do it again for a third time with 
with my second child. And it's hard because you want to be busy, but you're also in a new transition in your life that you should appreciate that time that, yeah, maybe you get to go home a little bit earlier because you have a newborn at home that you want to hang out with. So I think that's really wise, Chuck, to to say that there is a silver lining as you go through these different cycles of your career, but also appreciate the different transitions you're going in your life and that your practice is sometimes going to have to change based on your needs. One of the things, there was an, uh, an article we had to read for the orthopedic MOC about burnout because burnout is such a big issue. And one of the things that they say is that as surgeons, we need to have the feeling of control. Which is interesting because we are now um, in this situation where we're controlled by ad administrators who are not doctors. And how do you get that control of your practice when they're telling you to look at an Excel spreadsheet or some graph, and that's telling you what you need to be doing with your practice instead of, you know, the the outcomes of your surgery, or they're talking about Prescani scores, and and you're like, well, that's not really correlating with my happiness in my practice. So how do you get that control of your practice and and still be happy and still make your administration happy? If you can answer that, you've answered the key to success of all orthopedic practices. Okay, go. You know, the loss of control is what we all fear. And I think, unfortunately, in many of our practices, we don't have the control that we used to we are worried about declining reimbursements. We're doing things to try to maintain or grow our income uh, in a setting where, again, we have less and less control. I think the only answer we have is to you know, use the control that we have when we can and do what we can to build those parts of our practice that matter most. I think it's, it's not, a, not something that we can answer is one of the challenges of medicine. You know, I think in the United States, our health, well, this is my, my very much a soapbox. I think we have a very challenging healthcare system and I think it's going to get more challenging for us. Um, but we do have it better than many parts of the world as far as what we were able to do in our country and the autonomy that we still have. It's very different and I think we should be grateful for that. But the challenges that exist do mean we have declining control in our lives. And that's tough because that's, you know, we went into medicine for a reason and one of those reasons is that sense of control. And, and I, I do worry about that. I agree. We need to end on a happier note than that though. Um, and I do think this has been an amazing conversation. It feels like we could keep going forever, but tell us what's great about each of your practices, both Alexander and Megan. Tell us why you love going to work and doing what you do and what's good about being a young faculty member, millennial or not. I guess, I guess I'll start. So I kind of mentioned a little bit for me, it's, I get to, I get to help people. And I think one of the best parts of orthopedics and the part that drove me to the specialty is, you know, there's a tangible thing that you see at the end of your surgery where you said, I made this better. And then you see your patients back in the clinic and they tell you, I feel better. Um, so there's that sort of instant gratification that you have. Uh, being able to just sort of see people improve and think that I had some small part in it is really just one of the coolest things about being an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, and being able to, to mentor residents and, and fellows and see the, the next generation coming along and seeing that sort of spider web or tree kind of grow 
is really cool. You know, it, being in my, my fifth year of practice, this is this graduating chief class is the intern class that started when I was, when I, when I came back as a, as a faculty member and watching their growth and watching them go to amazing fellowships in a few months and going to see what their careers do. Um, it's really, it's really cool to be a part of that. Uh, so I think for me that that's been the best part. And I get to, I get to do surgeries that I absolutely love, you know, the four surgeries that I do, uh, as Chuck once told me when I said I wanted to go into shoulder elbow surgery, there are four great surgeries and, and, and I love all of them. And, and, uh, and, and it's been, it's, it's been really fun to, to get, to get really, really good at them too. So I'm in a fortunate situation. I'm married to a orthopedic surgeon. So I definitely get a lot of insight that people probably don't get from their spouses when talking about surgeries or, or things that have happened in their day. And he helps point out the things that make me happy in my career. And he gets to support me in that because he understands it. And he's helped me understand the things that make me happy and to make sure that those are the big things in my practice. And um, having a cheerleader like that is really important. But it's also helped me have some understanding of what I need to focus on. And one of the things that makes me really happy is I'm in a situation where I get to do the surgeries I want. I'm not being pigeonholed to, I can only do the left knuckle, you know, of the MCP joint of index finger, et cetera. But that I do have diversity in my cases. And I'm at a point in my career where I'm not having anxiety every day going in because I have all these cases that I've never done before, but I still do have cases that challenge me. So I like that diversity of cases, but also the diversity in, in uh, level of complication. Uh, I love teaching residents and fellows. I don't think I was that good at it when I started because I was still learning myself, but I think I'm at a point now where I have a lot more to offer or I hope I do, maybe we should check in with my residents and fellows. But I, I feel like I'm at a point where I, I'm receiving and giving to medicine. And it's not before I felt like I was always needing help, but now I'm, I'm helping others. So I, I do think that I feel like I'm, I'm on both sides of it. So it's, it's nice to be able to help people and, and, and give back everything that's been given to me. I do actually enjoy a lot of the leadership that I wasn't a part of, I got to watch other people be leaders. And, and now I'm asked to do those leadership roles. So I do enjoy them. It's just making sure I don't sign up to, for too many things. Nice, nice, nice bringing it full circle to close this out. I, I have to say, this has been super fun. I hope our audience will find it. And I think they will find it just as fun. And I really think the last thing that Megan said was really, really important is, you know, look for what brings you joy and maximize those things in your career, in your life, but especially, you know, in your practice, control what you can control, you know, double down on those things that bring you joy and not everything will, but I think that those are great words to uh, close this episode on. So, so thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with uh, your new arrival and uh, have fun with it. Thanks Chuck and Alexander for having me on. This has been really, really fun. Thank, thanks a ton for, for joining us and, and best of luck. Congratulations and uh, uh, hope everything goes smoothly. Mm-hmm.